look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How are you doing? I'm great, Faisal. Uh, how are you? Happy long weekend, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Um, although we're working stiffs, I guess. Working for the man in here, getting our show done on Saturday <laughs> for of the, the long man. weekend. <laughs> I work for my kids. I don't know who you work for. But sure, we'll go with the man. i got to meet the man one day. <laughs> uh, you know, I think a fantastic show this week because we're going to talk about the potential consequences of global trade issues. And what could possibly happen if, um, with the markets if, um, you know, say we uh, were punted out of NAFTA or NAFTA was torn up or the U.S. goes to global trade war with China? Let's try to get a, a sense in real, real terms what that means. It's scary for everybody, the headlines, but what is it yeah, actually There's two mean? parts. There's an economic piece and then there's a forecast of the future of the economics yeah. and how it impacts companies, which is the stock market. And, yeah. and we'll look at that uh, as well. And we've got our uh, chief economist, Dr. Avery Shenfield, uh, on uh, today to talk a little bit about that. So I think that'll be fantastic. Um, lots of gain. Let's just talk maybe in, in general <clears throat> a little bit about the uh, the markets and, and what we call the water cooler talk. Uh, there was an interesting conversation that happened this week, and it's not – this isn't a one-off conversation. This has happened a lot. So I thought maybe it, it's worth raising and having a conversation about Let me but, guess. It's the $1 trillion mark of Apple. No. Oh. No. No, no. Uh, wow. we, can talk, we can talk about that story. That's less interesting to me. I mean, it's a cool story, but it's less interesting to me than this. Um, when people get into a situation where they're drawing down on their portfolio, okay. okay? So I'm having a conversation with a couple, and their portfolio is continuing to go down, and they're concerned about it. So this was a second opinion conversation, and it's going down. They're concerned yep. about it. Um, was that a problem? They were concerned about it, but is it a problem? And so here's here's what I want to raise, okay? We talk often about how the rules change uh, when you transition into retirement. And the rules change fundamentally because you're in a drawdown phase. So for most of most people's lives, they have been accumulating wealth with a singular goal of growth. Yes. And so we've been come accustomed to other than, you know, periods of time where it goes down. But over the long haul, it goes, uh, your portfolio value grows in value, both through return and contributions. <clears throat> and now... You get into uh, into your 70s and 80s, and perhaps you're seeing that turn, or earlier, right? So you start drawing on your portfolio, we start to see it go down. Is that necessarily a problem? So it's a very um, difficult experience to have. Right. And this is why we talk about the retirement risk zone, which is plus or minus 10 years from the date of retirement. Mm -hmm. How you prepare or plan and have the strategy in place in that retirement risk zone period, plus or minus 10 years yep. from the day you call retirement or even semi-retirement. Right. Um, it, it, how you structure that will determine how your future will be. And let me kind of paint the picture of this sure. this couple that we gave a second opinion to. They are in uh, late 70s, early 80s. They came to us for a second opinion on on recommendation uh, from, an ex from an existing client. And um, they came to us with the amount, with their portfolio and they said for the past while now they've seen yeah. it going down yeah and the value has been going down at a rate that is not comfortable to them yep and 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 so they said they want to make sure that they leave a, a large estate and so I, I i kind of wanted to drill down on that the first part of it is is this estate designed or the money you want to leave behind and in like an insurance to leave or a, a portion of money to leave behind for beneficiaries like your kids mm -hmm. 
And the response was, well, no, I, I, I'm not concerned about leaving a gift or legacy for my children. I'm concerned that this money won't last. Right. And we take, um, we interchange sometimes, or our clients and, and people we meet with interchange the estate value with, do I have enough capital or money right. to live? Will I run out? Yeah. yeah. Will I run out is still the biggest fear. Yeah. Now, these individuals that came to us are past that retirement risk zone. Um, they came to us in their late 70s, early 80s, looking for a fix to the problem. And sometimes um, they can be re- it can be repaired, and sometimes it can't. And I think the hardest part is watching individuals see their money or the value of their portfolio go down because they're withdrawing. So let me give you an example. Let's say the couple has a million dollars, and they're drawing down um, $75,000 a year from that. Right. Assuming the markets do an average rate of return of 5 or 6%, let's just use that as an easy number, they're going to be drawing down more than they're actually growing. Right. And that's a hard thing for people to get their head around. Well, and and just to complicate that a little bit, it accelerates over time, right? The, the drawdown accelerates over time as you continue to chip away a little bit at principal. And that, that's where my first question was, is that necessarily a problem? Is that wrong? Correct. So there are, th- remember we talked about those rules of thumb in the yep. past and so forth. And some people still believe that they should just live off the return or the interest that is made in the portfolio. Now, with volatility, there are people who have poor portfolios. They are not constructed properly. The concern about that heightens. So if you're, like I said, if you're, if you're making 6%, but you're drawing 7.5%, you're going to draw in capital. That's hard to, to swallow. Right. Um, but at some point, you need to ask, how many years of capital do I have left? And this is what I tried to walk them through. And I said, you have about 17, 18 years of capital. That's a lot of years ahead of you. You guys think you're going to live past 18 years. And if you do, then you need to look at the rate of return that's required to live past that amount. Or the spending. Or the spending. Right. Mainly, I don't, I'm the lifestyle guy. I don't oh, like I to, understand that. I don't and, like and to I'm change the other guy, people's right? spending. Yeah. I don't want to tell them to cut their spending. I don't like that. What I do like saying is, can we actually achieve your objectives in the way that you envision it? And so in this situation, it was very difficult for them to get their head around that they're going to be drawing down on capital. So when I showed them that they had, let's call it 18 years of, of uh, capital left, assuming they put all the money in a bank account, earning zero interest. Mm-hmm. And they just took the money on a monthly basis. Yep. They're, they're six, six and a half thousand dollars a month. And they, and they wanted to spend it. They would actually draw down $75,000 a year. And, that, right. and I go, but that would last you for 18 years. Well, we're not going to live that long is what the first response yep. was. And I go, what if you did? What if you lived 25 years? You're 80. You're going to live to 105. All we have to do is get a certain rate of return that can meet that. And you don't have to take an absorbent amount of risk. Right. How do you feel about that? Well, they were fine. They were comfortable knowing that. And I think with the biggest error that people make when you're a do-it-yourself investor in retirement or if you have an advisor who's not a retirement transition expert, they do not tell you how many years of capital is left, how much money you have left, how many years that pension can be funded for. And this is what pension plans do all the time. I was just going to say, I mean, you think about for anybody that's out there listening and has a defined benefit pension plan or somebody, you know somebody that has one of those, what happens is those plans are designed to be drawn down to zero at life expectancy, right? So, you know, except if you've got a survivor benefit, when both couples are gone, that defined benefit pension plan is zero, right? So I go back to my question, is it necessarily wrong? 
And the answer is it's not. It depends on the objectives you have, right? right. And so what what this this couple was uh, was interesting to go through that sort of that coaching and exploration with them because it was. Yeah, but if I'm drawing down, I've been saving all the time. I want my portfolio to go up. Why do you want it to go up? Well, I'd like to leave something. Was that a requirement or is your lifestyle the requirement? Well, our lifestyle is a requirement. Okay, so let's reframe the objective. Is the lifestyle objective of X amount of dollars every single month and a high probability of success more important to you than leaving something behind? The legacy bucket. And so this is the problem. We've got less than two minutes left before we have to go to commercial break. Here's the fundamental problem of pretty much every Canadian, unless they're dealing with us, (laughs) is the problem is asset dedication. They are mashing up multiple objectives in one bucket and hoping it all works out. You cannot do that. You have to dedicate assets for different objectives, growing your money, your income that you need, your legacy, and Mm -hmm. healthcare if you ever need that. And these are the concerns that every retiree has. And so when you start to mash up all this into one big bucket, you don't know what that bucket's for anymore. You right. can't not, you cannot do this anymore. And so I think we, you and I have a mission to re-educate the population. Just, that's right, educate. That's and, right. and say, this is how you should look at your money going forward right. because we haven't been trained that way, so it's reprogramming. Yep. And then we have to then respectfully and within the rules of, the, of investing and the, the tax law, deconstruct your portfolio and reconstruct it in a way that you can live the life you want to. Right. Because at the end of the day, lifestyle is the most important for people and then their secondary and tertiary needs as well. Yeah. So if you work backwards from those objectives, then um, I think that becomes a lot easier. But it is a reprogramming or a re-education as you called it. Now, we're going to be talking about that very uh, topic and how to do that and some of the risks and challenges and the educational component that you talked about at our upcoming seminar. Yeah, they'll be on Tuesday, August 21st, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go on our website to register by going to morethanmoneyradio.com. You ever wondered what's going to happen if we go to a global trade war of NAFTA gets ripped up? Well, stay tuned because we're going to deal with that issue after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR. And Faisal, lots of conversation, questions, concerns, fears about global trade war and what the heck is going on. Yes. And so trying to make some sense. the concern is out there for sure. And we have to find our, our experts and no matter where yep. they are in this world, we'll find them <laughs> and we'll get them on this line so we can talk to our listeners because I think it's important. And we've got our chief economist uh, and uh, of, of CIBC Capital Markets, uh, Dr. Avery Shenfield. Dr. Shenfield, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so let me kind of just kick off yeah, right away. Right I think it. the biggest thing that's happening locally here in Canada versus globally, we'll talk about U.S. and China in a second, okay. but let's go right on to NAFTA. Yep. There was a conversation last week or a comment from the Mexican president saying they're, them and the U.S. are going to have some sort of deal coming out possibly soon. It uh, seems like Canada wasn't even at the tables. Um, people are concerned that maybe we'll be kicked out of NAFTA. There may not even be a NAFTA. Dr. Shenfield, why don't you give us your point of take about what's happening and what you see are the, the, the potential issues that can come up with, the, uh, with NAFTA 2.0, if that's going to even happen. I actually think this was a very positive development. So first and foremost, remember that they're still using the word NAFTA. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about MUSTA, Mexico-U.S. trade agreement. They're talking about the North America trade agreement. And I think what some analysts have, have misunderstood is that The reason Americans are sitting down with the Mexicans and the Mexicans alone 
is the U.S. and Canada were already close to an understanding on automotive trade. It was the Mexicans that had objected, in fact, to the last um, near agreement between Canada and the U.S. So if the U.S. can hammer out something that's acceptable to the Mexican government, uh, then I actually am quite confident that at least on the automotive chapter, uh, that's not going to be a problem for Canada. Okay, so we're optimistic that it's going to get worked out. Um, have you done any thinking, uh, math, or analysis on what might happen if uh, if the opposite were to happen uh, economically? And then we can talk about maybe what the mar- how the markets might respond. Sure. Well, while Canada seems to be surviving with a tariff on lumber, paper, steel, and aluminum, I think opening that up to a large tariff on automotive products would be a much different story in mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, we can sell some of those other part commodities to other parts of the world. The Americans need our aluminum and our lumber, so it's not really affecting the volumes, at least on those two commodities that much. But Americans have a lot of cars they can buy, and we only make a handful of different vehicles in the U.S. So if you slap a big tariff on, uh, we're going to see a sharp drop in sales of those vehicles in the U.S., don't really have any other place we can sell them. And we're talking about Canada's second most important export sector after oil and gas. So uh, all told, we think it would shave uh, economic activity by about a percentage point. It would mean likely at least a short-term recession in Ontario uh, and a significant dent to Canadian output, which is why it's now become much more imperative for Uh, the Trudeau government to pull out all stops to get a NAFTA deal over the line because the Americans have made it quite clear that they're just using this as this threat, as leverage to get a NAFTA deal. That if we reach a trade agreement, uh, they would drop the threat of tariffs on Canadian vehicles. And in that regard, it's worth noting that they just dropped the threat of that tariff on European vehicles because the Europeans have said they'll sit down with the Trump administration. So getting talks going is critical. Do you think um, that because we may not have a NAFTA, use that as part of your your variables in your analysis, and we're not going to get these pipelines potentially, and so we can't even ship oil at a faster rate out of Alberta, um, those, t- those two combined can put Canada into a recession? Well, they could. And in fact, the risk of that was something that was weighing on our forecast because we thought maybe Canadian businesses would be reluctant to spend in a host of industries in Canada. Why build a plant in Canada uh, if you're afraid that your access to the U.S. market could be shut off or that your sector would be next to be targeted the way lumber, steel, aluminum and potentially autos have been targeted? But that was sort of two weeks ago's story. And I think it's fair to say that our thinking on that is shifting and shifting much more favorably, that it looks like um, the Trump administration has come under so much criticism from Republicans uh, that this trade war, particularly a trade war with America's traditional friends in North America and Europe, uh, was going to do more harm than good, that it seems like now the Trump administration is trying to pull back from that position get trade agreements signed, and declare a win on that front. And that's very positive news for Canada. And I think, therefore, the clouds are somewhat lifting on some of those worst-case scenarios for the Canadian economy. So what's your what's your base case? Are we going to have a NAFTA or a NAFTA 2.0? Uh, if so, what's going to be the out, uh, outcome for our economy 
um, and give us a probability of that happening. And maybe if you have timelines, that's even better. So the U.S. wants to try to conclude agreements actually before the end of the year. And the reason for that is that the Mexican government changes over at the end of the year. And so if they can get an agreement with this president still in place, that would be helpful. That may be difficult. Uh, Congress wouldn't have that much time to actually approve such a deal. Uh, But I think at a minimum, we're going to have a preliminary draft of something, at least on the auto sector, quite soon. And that will remove one of the biggest uh, impediments to having a NAFTA deal, if not this year, then certainly towards the spring of, of 2019. So we do think that, yes, the NAFTA deal looks likely. I don't tend to put percentage odds on things, but I would say that's the much more likely outcome now. Do you, do you think, so what's the output for Canada? Is this just going to be a, we carry on as normal with a sigh of relief, or is this going to be a bump to our, to our economy? So that will be our sigh of relief on that front. It's not removing all of the drags on growth ahead. Uh, one of the most significant is that we're running out of unemployed people in Canada. So there's a limit to how fast we can grow now without just generating an inflationary overheating. So this year, the Canadian economy you know, is growing at, at, uh, at a fairly healthy clip, particularly in the second quarter, where we're going to see, I think, growth come in over 3%. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at something at 2% or less in 2019, simply because we just don't have that much unemployment left to absorb. So to some extent, we're a victim of our own success here. Let's talk. Let's shift a little bit away from NAFTA into the sort of the granddaddy of the trade disputes right now. It seems to be sort of going in the wrong direction, at least from a rhetorical or a, a rhetoric position, and that is U.S.-China. Maybe you could just give us a bit of a framework uh, to help understand the um, the problem that we're having. And we've only got, call it a minute, minute and a half, and then we can talk about some of the implications after the break, if you don't mind. Sure. While the Trump administration is making friends of its friends, it seems to be trying to make enemies of its foes. And that includes putting Russia in the penalty box uh, more decisively, but also heating up the trade war with China. We don't ultimately think that China can afford to live with this trade war forever. So negotiations could start there soon. Uh, But it's going to be a much tougher process to reach an agreement between the U.S. and China. I, I think that is a, a, an excellent place to leave it because there's no question it's going to be much more difficult. We'll come back and explore that and then what the likely outcomes will be and what we need to be aware, wary of as investors. But before we uh, go to break, phase, we should remind everybody about our upcoming seminar. Yeah, this is all going to have an impact on the economy, going to have an impact on your retirement, on the markets. So we're going to discuss that and our strategy to profit and protect no matter which way NAFTA goes, we're going to discuss that on Tuesday, August 21st, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. You can register online by going to morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, stick around and join us after the break as we explore what the implications uh, and the likely outcome of this U.S.-China conflict is with Dr. Avery Schenfeld, Managing Director and Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. Uh, You're listening to uh, 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. We've got uh, Dr. Avery Schenfeld, Managing Director, Chief Economist, CIBC Capital Markets, helping us understand the global trade market or the global trade war and then global economics here. Now, um, Avery, just before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about the framework, you know, the 
the challenge that it's going to be uh, between the U.S. and China to resolve that particular conflict. Maybe you can just expand a little bit about where you see the real uh, challenging, the sticky points on this, and then we can talk a little bit about what the expected outcome and timelines, as you say, uh, could be uh, as investors, what we're going to have to live through. The two big challenges here are that the U.S. is singling out China for having a large trade surplus with the U.S. And it's not as if you can, by the stroke of a pen, uh, cause a lot of that manufacturing that takes place in China to suddenly shift over to the U.S. So in some sense, the U.S. is asking China for the impossible. They're asking it to somehow rectify a trade imbalance that is almost structural in nature. The second issue is that China is also targeting to get more growth in, the, in certain industries. They have a long-term program to try to shift towards more higher-value goods. And that, the U.S. sees as a threat to its dominance in certain areas of technology. So the U.S. is actually challenging China on one of its central policy objectives. That's why I think negotiating something out of this is going to be very difficult. At the same time, there are two reasons to expect a negotiation. This is going to cause pain to the Chinese economy. Uh, they are going to feel it. And so they're going to certainly have an incentive to try to find a route out of the uh, back and forth tariff war. And at the same time, on the U.S. side, you know, the people who shop at Walmart, many of whom are Trump voters, uh, give this another six months. And they're going to start to see it show up on the retail shelves of, of places like the Walmarts and so on, where uh, some of the goods do have to come from China. And, and if they come from somewhere else, they're going to be more expensive. So there is going to be an inflation impact in the U.S. that I think is something the American administration is going to try to also want to negotiate out of. So, so don't you don't you feel that there's some outs for China besides um, this tit-for-tat strategy? Could they not devalue their currency? Could they not um, have restrictions on American companies coming into China or the ones that are already there? Could they not just go around the U.S. and start building uh, packs or agreements with other nations that would basically isolate the United States? Would, that, would those three, or maybe there's some other ones that you can think of that China could do without having them be impacted on their growth because they are a large growth engine for, for global economy? Well, you're right. There are some adjustments that can and will be made. And one of them is what we the invisible hand of the market. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, if people think that China's export prospects are going to slow, uh, one of the consequences is that the Chinese currency starts to slip. And in fact, uh, to date, the decline in the Chinese yuan versus the U.S. dollar has offset uh, for its trade competitiveness a lot of the tariffs that have been put on. So that's not really something that China wants to use as a tool because the reality is that Chinese consumers are then poorer when they shop abroad. Uh, but it is one of the ways that markets will adjust. The difficulty here for China is that putting tariffs on U.S. goods in retaliation isn't as effective a weapon because the U.S. doesn't export as much to China as China does to the U.S. So mm -hmm. they're not inflicting as much pain on their American trading partner. And it's very difficult to reorient uh, trade towards other uh, countries. Remember that the U.S. is still the world's largest economy. And so it's very difficult to find substitute consumers for everything that China makes. Just as American companies that rely on supply chains that go through China are going to find it difficult. Remember that 
often is what's often the case is that China assembles something, but the parts are coming from all over. The software and the designs might be coming from U.S. companies where the engineers and designers are working. Uh, so the, the intertwined nature of global trade makes it a slow and expensive process to reorient uh, an economy or even one production line. Avery, what, what's the what's the the probability outcome here? So give us a sense of what you are. Do cooler heads prevail? Um, and kind of what probability as you're doing your forecasting? Do you put on a positive outcome versus say a negative outcome? So I think cooler heads will eventually prevail, but I think that relative to the timeline uh, for NAFTA, for example, or even for the U.S. backing away from a trade deal with Europe, this one could take a bit longer just because, uh, you know, first of all, the politics in the U.S. are that Americans do think they've been ripped off by China on trade. And it is the one country where perhaps uh, Trump has a point that, U.S. companies haven't got the same access to China's market, that China has been uh, doing things with intellectual property rights that are perhaps, um, you know, not in the spirit of open global trade. So I think that's why this one could take longer. So I don't expect to see much progress before, for example, the midterm elections. I think Trump wants to go into those midterm elections in November with big tariffs on in China, so you can say I've got tough with, uh, mm-hmm. with the Chinese. Uh, but by the end of Trump's uh, four-year mandate, I guess my our assumption is that we will have some sort of coming down from the brink uh, by then from both the U.S. and China on this front, because it is ultimately a bit of a lose-lose proposition to end up with high tariffs and trade barriers in both directions. From your perspective, with, with what you've talked about with NAFTA and with the trade war between U.S. and China, where do you see the global economy stick? And let's kind of wrap it up by where do you see the markets kind of move because of that? Is it a time to start to harbor more in bonds or cash because there's a lot more headwind in front of us? Or do we still enjoy some of these gains that we're making in the markets? Well, one way or another, the global economy was going to be slowing because too many countries, not just Canada and the U.S., but Germany and Japan, are closing in at full employment. So there is a limit to growth that's going to start to hit. Uh, this probably means that this trade war disruption might mean slightly fewer interest rate hikes to get that slowdown. Um, but uh, we still think that interest rates will be rising. So longer-term bonds may not be the place to be. Shorter-term bonds starting to look more attractive now that yields have risen. I still think from here to the end of the year, uh, because I don't think we're facing any further bad news on that trade front, uh, that equities still have a reasonable uh, attraction for portfolios. Remember that short-term bond yields are still pretty low. There are a lot of companies paying reasonable dividends. So even if the stock market just hovers where it is, it's providing a, uh, a reasonable after-tax return. And so, Avery, maybe we'll just we'll try to wrap it up on this. But um, so I'm the, the risk guy on our team, and I lay awake at night worrying about all the things that go bump in the night. And so I'm interested to get your perception of what you're laying awake worrying about at night. So for me, the biggest risk actually lies come 2020. Uh, because for this year and next year, part of the power of the global economy was the impact of big U.S. tax cuts, big U.S. government spending increases, driving Canada's most important trading partner. By 2020, we move past that. We may have Congress actually cutting government spending that year to bring, start to bring the deficit down. And we will be at that point feeling the impact of the interest rate hikes that we'll have seen in both the U.S. and Canada uh, in 2018 and 19. So, 
2020 looks to be a slower year for growth. And we just have to hope that uh, in raising interest rates over the next year and a half, the central banks take into account that one of the big lifts to growth, that is the tax cuts and spending hikes in the U.S., are going to start to fade in their impact. So we, we're certainly hoping that the central banks don't overdo these rate hikes and cause the 2020 recession. That's the, that's the thing that right now is most worrisome to me. And the good news is it's still uh, a year and a half away from where we are today. Right. So the, uh, the the global economic dashboards, call it for the next 12 months, maybe even 18 based on, on your call there, looks pretty decent. But we're getting long in the tooth on this recovery, and there are certainly some headwinds that uh, that appear to be, uh, you know, increasing or rising as we get deep into 19 and early 2020. Uh, Avery, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been um, very helpful in terms of understanding and making some sense of where the global economy is, some of the risks, and what these trade wars may may in fact look like. You're welcome. All right. We've been joined by Dr. Avery Schenfeld, Managing Director and Chief Economist to CIBC Capital Markets. And Faisal, um, <clears throat> it's an interesting time. Um, I think uh, I think Avery does a great job of, of putting it into uh, plain English, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There are risks we're talking about, uh, as there are every single year. Uh, and we've got to be able to position and be dynamic to move through those risks because people's uh, retirements aren't just for one year. And I think the reaction of an average investor comes out saying, Trade war equals my market. The market's going to fall, so let's change it now. Right, right. They're trying to time when that's going to happen, and I, based on what Avery was saying, is it can be somewhere around <laughs> mm-hmm. certain times. Mm-hmm. Let's use twenty twenty as an example that he mentioned. It's around. It's not exact dates. Don't don't fret on that. I think that's the biggest concern. So have a strategy in place, and in the event risk starts to increase in those types of things, what do you do in your portfolio versus a knee-jerk reaction every time? Because that's that's how you lose a lot of money in this type of market. Well, again, you've got to have a strategy for a longer period of time, be dynamic enough to adjust. Um, but these are, like like Avery said, these are very long-term issues. Like the China, uh, China-U.S. negotiation is going to take time. Um, and uh, it is likely not, doesn't mean we wake up one day and there's no trade between the countries, right? So you can't be that dramatic in terms of understanding uh, the process that we'll work through. But we're going to talk about strategy at our next uh, seminar. That's be on Tuesday, August 21st, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats, so give us a call, 966-8400, or go on our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. What happens if you have to draw your portfolio down over time to support your lifestyle? Is that good or bad? Join us after the break, and we're going to talk about that particular point. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back here with David Faisal on uh, 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Um, You alluded in the first segment to an interesting uh, story this week, my friend, and that is we had our first U.S. publicly traded company reach a trillion dollars. In In the U.S. In In the the U.S. U.S. In the United States. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that uh, company, as most people will know, is Apple. That was all over the news. Correct. Um, it's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks of, uh, of announcements for technology companies because there's been a wide dispersion um, of, uh, of results, right? So we see Apple come out with some pretty good results and mm-hmm. push through that trillion-dollar mark. Uh, we see Facebook come out with uh, a different set of results and, you know, lose billions of dollars uh, of market cap in, you know, in a day. Yeah. In a single day, 120 billion or something along those lines. Uh, Twitter the same. So, so what's the market telling you when you when you see stuff like that? Well, you know, I think that um, that that valuations and uh, earnings fundamentals actually matter, right? Fundamentals matter at some point. So you can go through periods where markets earnings matter. Yeah, 
uh, sorry, not market value, but earnings ultimately, yeah. fundamentals ultimately matter. And we can go through periods where uh, markets just want to, uh, you know, the tide lifts all ships or it, or it sinks all ships at the same pace. But at some point, fundamentals, uh, fundamentals do play out. And so you're starting to see uh, a dispersion amongst, say, the technology, the U.S. large technology companies, which were just a sort of a uniform driver, right, of, of market growth uh, in 2017. Not necessarily the case in 2018, right, as the market tries to reprice these companies based on fundamental earning power and growth over the longer term. Maybe the technology stocks are long in the fang. Oh, easy. Get that? Easy. Huh? That's, That's funny. so cheesy. Fang, get it? Facebook, yes. Apple, yeah. Alpha. Terrible. Yeah. Netflix. It's a terrible joke. Google. Oh, that's great. I thought it was funny. It's your worst one in a while. It is, eh? Okay. But it makes the point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is a very interesting part. Now we're getting to divergence. And now it's going to be company specific. But now it's going to be more focused on how they're reacting. How does technology react on, on certain issues like trade war? How, does, how do other companies react? Is old economy gone, new economy in is it back to old economy? Those types of things. And when I'm saying old economy, the things that we used to always rely on, like it's back railway. It's fundamentals, man. It's back to fundamentals, at least for the time being, right? And here, volatility, um, let's just use pick on technology again, because that freaks people out, volatility. How can a company as big as Facebook lose one-fifth of its value in one day, right? Yesterday, it was worth you know 20% more than it is today. How does that happen? Yeah, and I think that's where, where um, the... Momentum builds on momentum. And so when we see companies, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, whomever, yeah. Google, we, we, can, we can look at when, when people are buying into an investment, they buy in with two reasons. Either it's one, there's a quick gain, opportunity to make mean, money, yep. opportunity to make money really fast. Yep. It may not be a trade because a trade means you're going to sell Fair that enough. position, but an opportunity to make money fast. Or the other one is you fundamentally view that company as an integral part of your portfolio because there's a long-term benefit to it. Those two things sometimes have a duality. And when, because there's a lot of trading and short-term-minded short individuals in the market, uh, there's, there's a problem when you don't reach higher and higher performance. At some point, you cannot continually grow a business, and I'll pick on Facebook, at 50% per year. It just cannot happen. And I think people forget that. I think people forget that. And you can take any industry, any stock, and say the same thing. How long can this prevail? And how long do you want to hold on to that type of an investment until it turns? And Facebook just slapped everybody in the face that said, pun intended, uh, that, um, that if you hold on to a stock with higher expectations, you better be ready for them to disappoint because if they do disappoint you, you're going to get nailed. And that's why we saw so much of a drop in Facebook opposite to Apple. They haven't given us a slap in the face. Uh, They've upgraded. They've expanded. You know, They've yeah. multiplied. Not saying Facebook's a bad company. Right. Right. Just saying that these are examples of, of things that can happen to people when they start to put in their, their chips all on one or all in one sector. We've learned that here in Alberta with energy. Everybody was talking about energy. Energy was the best thing to yep. buy. It was always going up for, yep. for a good period in time, yep. and then it turned on us. That happens in every sector, every industry, every stock. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting, the volatility in these growth stocks, you see those big swings. And, you know, if, if you're an analyst and you've got a sophisticated model that you're trying to calculate, you know, what the value of this company is based on future earnings, if the future earnings potential drops, 
um, you know, that could filter through and have a very, very dramatic effect on valuation. But we also saw, this is interesting, you remember when Microsoft went through this? Yes. Do you remember when Apple went through this, right? Yes. They, they became, they were growth companies with rapid growth, and then they matured, they started to pay a dividend, and oh my goodness, right? There was a massive rotation of the client base. So a lot of those people that had those growth, they're rotating out. Yeah, people the that investors wanted it, changed. Yeah. That's right. It turns over. So these companies mature and they change. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure Facebook is at that point yet, but this is what happens, right? So you got, uh, you've got money that is leaving because they feel the story is now different. You've got new money coming in. They might have a different valuation. But the problem with these companies when they're priced to perfection and you're paying multiples on future growth, if you don't get that growth, it can have a very dramatic effect. So... It's not even an old economy versus new economy. My my point for for bringing this up is, yeah, fundamentals do matter, right? And sometimes we forget that when there's a momentum trade happening and you're just pushing Netflix up to 185 or 187 times future earnings, right? At yep. some point, valuations become uh, the fundamentals become, and real. it's the push on free on, on on greed. Sorry, the push on greed comes into play. When all you want is it the stock to go up with the hope that things will get better. So what do you learn from the, these types of issues? Apple versus Facebook as an example. One, do not chase after stocks that are moving at a fast rate uh, on earnings because if you're getting into a stock on that, you better have an analysis that is going to continue to do so. Yeah. Number two, diversification. Yeah. The biggest uh, benefit when things are going down the biggest drawback when things are going up, people hate it that you're diversified in your portfolio. When certain um, investments like technology just takes off, how come we didn't have more technology? We should have known that. That's, that was, that's all across the world that technology is important. Well, a Facebook drop, um, or those might remember, Nortel right. would have the same re re reaction to saying you don't put all your chips in one industry. And so there's rules to investing. There's... There's rules to getting in and getting out to an investment. If you do not have a buy strategy or a sell strategy, that can really impact you, and that can impact the overall performance. More importantly, if you're transitioning to or living in retirement, mm -hmm. that could be a make or break in retirement. Yeah, it, it definitely can be. So concentration risk is a real issue. You know, ultimately, um, the, the, none of the comments we've made today are specific to, you know, um, whether or not you should own any single company because ultimately, and I'm speaking to the particularly the do-it-yourselfers out there, remember that a portfolio isn't just a collection of good ideas at the time, right? And make sure that the investments in there are suitable, and that's one of the key pillars of, of our industry when we have to invest for clients. Make sure it's suitable uh, and that you can handle both the ups, which nobody has any trouble with, yeah. and the downs, which can be very and how, dramatic. how you determine suitability is not suitable. It's suitable when it's going up. Right. <laughs> It's suitable if you can handle the risk when it goes down. Yep. That's the suitability test. So be aware of that. And I think we should be discussing this at, all, at, at our seminar. We should be talking about a strategy. A strategy yeah. how, do you, how do you get in and get out? How do you make sure that you're diversified? How do you profit and protect in those types of markets? We're going to be talking about that on August 21st. That's Tuesday, 7 p.m. at night at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or go on our website to register at morethemoneyradio.com. Okay, and I think we will wrap up another show here, but before we do that, I want to remind everybody that uh, if you're interested in any of the segments today or in the past that we've had on the show, you can always access those uh, by going to morethemoneyradio.com, and we have them all archived there for you. Or you could, excuse me, you can have them delivered to you directly Every single week by searching for More Than Money CHQR 
on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. I want to thank you for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770-CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.